Three Dogs North is an attempt to objectify the subjective with little violence as possible. The following has been torn from its origins in space and time and put entirely at your disposal. Now, Three, two, one. Here we go. Go. Here we are. That was a good snot rocket, though. It was clean. Clean exit. Clean exit. I this got, can get messy. Mm-hmm. I got a heart out in 42 minutes. Sorry, I don't mean to just bog the fans down with our infighting and logistics here. <laughs> I was... Uh, I watched the Ken Burns documentary on baseball, which we talked about briefly a while back, and he mentioned the origin of the term fans, because I think baseball was the first sport that had fans, so to speak. And I always assumed it was fanatics, but there was something else. I think it was like people who fancy baseball. Really? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very old phrase. That is a very old phrase. It's like, oh, he's a fan. He fancies it. Like, I would prefer that it would be people who were, like, so diehard that they would go, even when it's so hot. They need to fan themselves. They needed to fan themselves. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's a good point, too. Oof. I mm-hmm. saw that joke coming from a mile away. And no, that's, still... not a, that's not a joke. I, that's my preference over that than fancy. <laughs> I fancy the game of baseball. Or that they play baseball really fancy. Yeah. I watched Moneyball last night. It was one of those things where I had a really long day and I sat down to eat. I was like, oh, I'm by myself. Tim was away. So I just turned on Netflix. I was like, oh, Moneyball's on here. I'll just start it. It's a good movie. And then I ended up watching the whole thing because it's such a good movie. That is a great movie. It's been a while since I've seen it. Did y'all ever read the book? Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Yeah, I, I didn't either. <laughs> Man, baseball, it really does. It's one of those sports that uh, the statistics, they are endless. Mm-hmm. The, the possible scenarios and crunching of numbers that you can do. Yeah, I love just a very obscure baseball statistic. On Tuesday evenings, that fell on the 13th, past 7 o'clock, He's hitless. Let's see if the streak is Like, dude, how did somebody figure that out? He's hitless in this circumstance. Out? He's yeah. 0 for 1. He's hitless. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Man. That's a great of- line. Brad Pitt, he says, it's hard not to be romantic. Or how can you not be romantic about baseball or something? When that big heavy guy hits the home run and he doesn't realize it, and he rounds first and falls down. That, that last scene, he's watching the film. It's like a metaphor for his whole life. It's like, how can you not be right? Metaphor. Or, uh, gosh, it's early. Romantic about baseball. Yeah. I had, a, I think, a pretty real effective movement towards that movie. One time, it's when the, uh, it's the scene when he's first kind of breaking it to his old, like, veteran um, scouts that this, this yeah. is the way they're going. And um, he kind of gets like gets him going and like gets into it. And then he just says like, then what the F are we talking about? And the, um, I've thought about that. The, I think the effective movement there was at the time, at least 
I, I thought we, it's almost like there's a desire in me of like, how do we like money ball evangelization and stuff in the church? And like, I, I think that movie is cool because it distills down like they, they get to the thing that they want to do and then they just like go for it on there. Mm -hmm. There's like one thing that they're trying to do and they, they think, Hey, this is the way to, to do it. And we're going to do it, which I think is, I, I mean, I think that's cool, but I don't know. I think there, there's been a shift in me since that. It was something you said a time or two ago, this, that put some words on it for me, but you were sharing like when the coffee house was bumping and it was like a great scene and, and cool to see, but I can't remember how you worded it, but you said like you were actually more concerned with like just that like your core group was like joyful in it, like the the baristas and, and stuff like that. And that was a cool image. So I guess, I mean, pretty much all the effective movement is there is like, I think a shift in me from like we got to figure out how to evangelize the world and like, we have to do it. And like, how do we like, what's the thing that we, we figure this out to, Hey, actually it's like, it's a really happy life. And there's a lot of problems in, in the church, but maybe the way is to let God do it. And like, take care of those who are like really entrusted to you in the flesh before you. Yeah, I liked how um, once he had made his decision, once he saw the truth of this method, um, just no one could stop him. Like he w he could not be discouraged. Whereas Jonah Hill's character, when he first is like cleaning house, so that the manager has no choice but to play the play the players the way that they meant them to be played, like the cat the former catcher who's supposed to play first base and all this stuff, and he just won't do it because he can't get out of the old model um he's like these are really difficult moves to explain and brad pitt's like do you believe this will work and he's like yes of course and he goes it's a problem that you think we need to explain ourselves <laughs> that's a really good line uh if it's right then you just do it you know um obviously that kind of that can be a problem if you're conceited or something and you're totally totally like impervious to feedback and if you are wrong or you you have blind spots um you know you can you can create a high body count if you just like go at it bullheaded and you can't be stopped but there's also something um about the confidence to just once you once you've seen the truth not to let the haters and the voices of um, actually the effective movement I had was Philip Seymour Hoffman is the manager mm -hmm. in the movie. And he goes in there to talk to him because he's playing the guys all wrong and he doesn't get what, what the uh, GM's trying to do. And he's like, <laughs> Brad Pitt's character is just trying to talk him into it, you know, like not being a jerk. He's just like, look, it's not going to work if you don't play him the way that we're, you know, and he's like, I'm just trying to play these guys so that I can explain it in job interviews next year or something like, like basically just giving up. I don't have any love for this. I'm unhappy. <laughs> it's like great talking to you. I am always left from our great chats with a refreshed and invigorated love of the game or something like that. <laughs> just a sarcastic comment. And, 
he just goes on away unflappable you know he's gonna keep he's gonna keep at it um and there are people who are just like life sucks you know like once they uh, sometimes there's there's meetings at the um you know deanery archdiocesan level where priests get around and in certain circumstances you know we're just talking about like oh october counts are down and this or that and criticizing people's ideas of how to solve problems with evangelization and stuff and like oh blah blah blah, and it's just all negativity um and you leave and that and the overwhelming feeling is of like we can't do anything everything sucks (laughs) what's the point of living and then you're around other people who have just ideas and are positive and it's not fantasy it's just like i'm excited about what's going on here and you're like i am invigorated by your love of baseball um and they still lost, you know, but that kept him going. I wish I had something to contribute. It's been a while since I've seen this movie, but I do resonate with the point that. Well, you are a World Series champion. Did you get a ring? Did you? Yeah. Yeah. Did you get a ring? No. No, I didn't get a ring. Not yet, anyways. <laughs> yeah, they'll probably we'll mail it to you. Yeah. Yeah. Probably. I'll just get snit on the horn. <laughs> Yeah, call him on the horn. That's such a that's that's a baseball way to say on the phone. Oh, totally. It'd be Man, funny. I would love if they sent you a him. ring and you were all pumped, and then like two weeks later, you just got an, an egregious bill for said ring. They're like, yeah, you weren't on like the <laughs> top tier. Yeah, <laughs> fifty thousand dollar ring. <laughs> I'd pay it. I'd pay it for sure. Yeah, dude, I would love to make one of those calls just from the bullpen, get on one of those bullpen telephones, which almost all of them that I see now, they still have the little cord hookups as yeah, well. Yeah, still an old phone. Which is really amazing. Mm-hmm. Baseball is great. But I, I, I did, uh, I resonated with, and it, it aligns with my experience in organizations that I've enjoyed working with and people that I've enjoyed working for. And then this hasn't been present in other places where I've not enjoyed where I've worked is um, if people who are like in charge of me or it, that have been placed under my care or that I've been placed under their care, they take care of their people that are close to them. Um, it seems to be like a, a recipe for that life-giving culture, that life-giving atmosphere that really fosters like the spirit of, of movement in the right direction. Um, but if like I've worked for people that just don't take care of the immediate people in front of them because they're so concerned about what's going on at a higher level or way too far out in the future that they look past me and Hmm. as a result kind of trample on you that uh that's a super discouraging um and i've always taken it as like oh man you're missing it on like a bigger picture you see me as a or you see the people that work for you as tools for hmm. your benefit um but then you have somebody that really cares about the people in front of them like no what i want here is that my breezes are happy and that the people that work here are are fulfilled and are good at their jobs, that they're competent. So I want to work with the people that are right in front of me. Uh, and not only is that better for the individuals, but it seems like the best way to also run a business. Mm. Um, 
or run a model that takes leading people. So you take care of the person that's like right in front of you. Um, so I definitely resonate with that. And the institutions that have a high body count, like no wonder nobody wants to work for you. No wonder nobody wants to be a part of that because you, you treat, you eat your own. Yeah. It's not, that's not, that's not Christianity. Um, right. Yeah. So I, I definitely do resonate with that. I got, I gave this talk a week or two ago on church authority because we, as a staff kind of, um, people had different experiences that led them to believe that, uh, you know, like a lot of students or a sizable number, significant number of students had some sense of like, we might call cafeteria Catholicism where they're attracted to the community. They're even attracted to certain aspects of the faith, but they're not sold on usually the typical things. Um, that the culture finds to be obstacles or outdated in terms of Catholic uh, moral teaching about sexuality, et cetera, or just the whole idea, which then is like a, a fissure or a, a crack in the, in the pavement for like church, the magisterium, papal infallibility, et cetera, et cetera. And just like the church doesn't know on these things and just needs to get with the times. And so like kind of not just an apologetic in defense of, but like what is the actually the gift of the magisterium and being able to reliably uh, trust that the church can teach authoritatively on faith and morals. And what does that mean? And papal infallibility and all that stuff. And um, so I kind of gave a overarching picture and why that, why that matters. And then in the particular about the sexual stuff, like I, it seemed to me like, there's two basic principles that um, that everything relies on or everything flows from. One is the personalistic norm, John Paul II, that persons may not be used. They must be loved and treated as ends in themselves. And then that we are body and soul, embodied spirits. So our body is not ancillary to our, our being, you know. Um, you're not just a ghost in a machine, kind of a genderless, uh, you know, soul whose body can be manipulated to express whatever you feel inside, nor are you simply a body without a soul, which means your body is just kind of raw material for whatever you want. We are an embodied spirit. And and those two things, I feel like so many things flow from it. Teachings on contraception, abortion, gender, whatever. Um, so the church can teach on, on natural law things. That's the catechism says that it's not simply divine revelation. Like, don't eat meat on Fridays and Lent, but like certain things that are just written into our, our being in nature, the church is an authority and can tell us like, no, this is, this is the truth. Um, and after I gave that talk, I've been, I've been thinking about that personalistic norm more. And, um, like last night, I, uh, there's been like some leaves in our, our parking lot since fall. And, I just know that those need to get raked up before it snows. Otherwise they're going to get all matted down and slippery and then they'll be there next year. And it'll be just this mess of decaying leaves and stuff. Just clean it up and on our patio too. And we have a couple of student workers that are from this fraternity that have just for years and before I got here, always been the guys who kind of like watch the store after five o'clock until it closes at nine. And I was like, um, why don't I just have these guys rake, you know, 
but it's like gets dark at 4 30 right now and so it's five o'clock this kid comes in I'm like hey can you rake this uh part of the parking lot and the patio and it's like leaving this college kid with a rake in his hand in the pitch dark in the city and i felt like i was using him you know <laughs> like is this loving this kid you know treating him as an end in himself or like how does that work when you are leading somebody to to your point mike um and it was his last the thing that made me think of it was it's his last shift like he's worked for us for two years and i've known this kid but most of my like the baristas <laughs> you monster <laughs> i know the baristas and the and the missionaries and the staff and everybody like there are people who you know i totally do that i invest in them they're the people right in front of me i don't treat them as means to an end and but everybody has a job and as the leader you also have to make sure people are doing the job and you have to make sure the place is managed well and then but here's this kid and we just had this conversation at the end i'm like so you're graduating huh he's like yeah uh at the end of the week this is finals week um then i'm moving back home and looking for work i'm like all right well and i just made some niceties like what was your major again and all right well have a nice life <laughs> and i really like this kid like he but we haven't talked that much and i don't think he minded it you know and we paid him so uh I don't know if it's like just an interior thing. Like do you still see this person in front of you, even though they are the only reason that you even have a relationship is because I need someone to rake leaves and answer phones and you need some cash. And that's a convenient thing. And I can still treat you like a human being. Um, you know what I mean? Yeah, I definitely do and that's, that's a, a I, I just seem like an odd application of that principle yeah you know like is it really true people cannot be used mm -hmm. i would be curious Metz, if you have any insights because i would i'm interested in it of like and i know it's not necessarily you know the same realm but like how would like um like leadership training in in the military deal with a scenario like in the same principle because i i thought about that i remember it was um Gosh, I think it went when I was working for Focus, so years and years ago. But Father Mike Schmitz gave came and gave a homily, and he was talking about like it was some story of like a, a Newman kid that had been like very, maybe even like joined the church at his campus and had been like very very formed there, and was going to like some pretty hardcore overseas mission work. Then like felt a pull mm -hmm. towards it and like had just totally surrender their life to Jesus. And I think he might've went to the airport. This could be totally off. So, but I think he might've went to the airport, like with the family to give him a blessing. And he ended up saying he was like, it realized, he realized it as he was leaving, he was like, Whoa, he could die doing this. And he was like, that's my fault. He's like, I could have sent this kid, you know, to his, death in the mission fields but like then having to be convicted in your own heart of like that's like worth it for him to follow the lord and it was just yeah. like really cool reflection on um yeah i think whether it's like being formed as a disciple that's helping to lead others or just a leader in in general like that requires asking it requires being in a position that you have to ask other people to make sacrifices. 
Right. Mm. And that's harder than just making sacrifices yourself for, I think, certain right. personality traits. Yeah, for sure. So that's kind of where I get at it. I don't know if you have any insights there. Yeah. Um, well, the way that we get the training when I was like being trained to be a platoon leader, which would be in charge of about 40 soldiers or so. And then uh, after being a PL, then you'd be a company commander, which would be in charge of probably, um, I don't know, probably like four different platoons. So about 160 to 200 people, something like that in a company. And they have such a strong top down structure that that idea of um, like listening to orders and following orders, it is very, very, very strong. But then they also, and maybe this is where it's lacking a little bit, they do emphasize having uh, the ability to critically think and they want officers who can think on their own and make decisions on their own, but they don't really explain like where those two intersect. And so um, having to like critically think through the orders that, that you're receiving, sometimes guys make the right decision and they get in trouble because they didn't just follow orders. Um, and then, so it's a, it's a tough balance, but they, they do ask us to be ready to send guys into combat to die. And I have always found that when I was going through that training and kind of like, you know, putting yourself in that perspective, would I be able to do that to ask somebody to make a sacrifice? Um, and it seems like, and maybe this is kind of like the bigger point there. It seems like I could only make that call if I was there with them. Like, I don't know if I would be capable of doing it as an outsider, but that if I'm actually running with them shoulder to shoulder and we're heading into the thing together, then I, I think I could lead troops into that. I could ask people to make that sacrifice if I'm there with them. Um, but then to do it from a distance, it feels a bit, it always felt a bit like, like a chess game, you mm -hmm. know, where you're an outsider directing and moving people here and there. But at the same time, like there are people in the military who need to have the ability to do that. And that's actually what they're supposed to do. And, um, you know, I, I wonder how much of it is, I mean, cause what we're talking about is you have two adults freely consenting to a type of a relationship that's mutually beneficial, which is a good thing. That's not a bad thing. That's, you know, kind of how the free market works. Well, I give you this, you give me that. Just interrupt you. That's exactly kind of the point I made in this talk was like, even though someone might say I'm okay being used or the other person might say this person is consented for, for me to use them. It's still not permissible. Right. So, but would you also acknowledge that people can be instruments? Well, that's what I guess that's where things. I'm like trying to think like, how do you, how do you reconcile this um, hard and fast thing that John Paul II uses in love and responsibility in terms of the sexual ethic um, to your base, you're like all your relationships. Um, well, Hey, I can I, can I just finish a point there yeah, before, yeah. before we talk about that? Uh, the thing that I always think about is Leonidas from Gates of Fire. Mm -hmm. Like 
a guy who leads his troops from within his troops. And it's, I mean, it's like the good shepherd motif that he, he leads from the front, but he also walks with them and he also checks behind. So he's, he's making sure that they're safe, but he's also walking with them into combat and he's leading the way towards the proper aim. And like Leonidas, the ultimate leader, he does not do it from a distance, but that right. he gets down there and he takes care of his people so that when he asks them to do something, like he knows who he's asking. He knows where their families are from. He knows the people that he's picked and, and choose. Um, and I don't think it helps with the principal thing, but it does um, make it personal mm-hmm. when you are making those decisions. That's a good, yeah, it is a very good point, like the personal element um, to it. But I do think the like the the principled point does have to be like thought out and very accepted because even like totally different scale. I, re- I relate very much to that. Whatever feeling was going in, on inside of you, bisque of like, hey, these leaves need raked and I don't have time to to rake them. And like, right. you just need to do it, dude. And I'll pay you to do it. <laughs> and like, that's actually what's best in that. So there, right. there has to be some type of like, like principle to ground that then. Right. Well, it's well, okay. So Biss, I cut you off, man. Sorry. Hop back on there. No, I think your comment at the end there made some sense. It's like, um, Bishop Bartosik, a mentor of mine when I was in the parish, uh, he was my pastor as an intern and, um, He's the kind of guy that would be there at the end of an event, putting away folding chairs, you know, and mm-hmm. taking out garbages. And so if he asked me to do something as a seminarian, I knew I was like a lowly nobody and he was the pastor, but he, I knew that like, if he asked me to do something, it's not anything that he wouldn't be willing to do and didn't think was a, a worthy task as part of the the kingdom of God here in Cicero, you know? Um, so it's like the circumstances and the context around the ask, you know, Hey, can you do this? Um, that I'm not simply like stepping on your skull on my way up to the top, you know, like we are coworkers here and I, in the chain of command, am the one who has this 30,000 foot view and can see all that needs to get done. And that's an important role. And in, in that way, you're kind of using me, so to speak, as the guy who makes this place run, you know, I'm paying you. And, uh, and making sure that there is money here. Um, that's what I've been doing all day. So I don't have to, I don't have time to rake leaves. So like the division of labor and stuff, I, I think it's still, you can still be a personalist, you know, you can still treat people like persons, human subjects, not objects. Um, yeah, the, I guess the end in themselves thing, like, why are we here? Why are we even raking the leaves? It's not, you know, it's not because it's the, that's an end in itself. That's a means to making this place a beautiful, hospitable place for people. And you are part of the team that's doing that, you know, so that's humanizing. Yeah. And it was, and it's also deeply, deeply meaningful to be a part of a group that does work hard to beautify a place that doesn't come around on its own, but that it actually does take effort, aim, uh, leadership, like a lot of helpful willing hands to get in there and do it and 
I mean, maybe a, a helpful principle that we can add into the mix that allows us to say, you know, things like this, like this, this type of uh, transactional relationship at a business level is, it's actually a good thing is that we also believe that work is, is dignified. Mm-hmm. Like there's a goodness to work. And so you're actually asking people to do part of the thing that they were created for and part of the thing that's also going to make them more human. And, and there are good ways to do that and there are bad ways to do that, of course. But that work itself is also dignified. And so, yeah, like I hated when dad would make me go out and, and do certain chores, mm-hmm. things like that. But, but he also knew that I needed to do that. And he was, he was using me for sure. We yeah. had a whole landscaping team, dude. We were so good. But then it got to a point where I was like, no, I want to do this and I want to be a part of this and I want to do a good job with it. And I want to exercise my ability to like have dominion over the house and the yard and over this little space. And that's actually a really good thing. And what used to be kind of forced and, and immaturity felt like, ugh dad's just like won't get off my back yeah i just want to play video games man what's your deal dude (laughs) dad what is your deal dude Dude, let me go to sleep bro it's noon (laughs) and he'd be like no you're being you're not you're not living right now you're being a slug and so even there was goodness in the work itself and again that can be totally misused but it um i think that has to be a part of the equation Mm -hmm. which gives some freedom to say something like go rake those leaves or i'll strike you (laughs) (laughs) there's also uh, you know i'm I'm thinking of uh of john i love that verb by the way (laughs) i will strike you (laughs) to to strike oh oh i love that in the in the last supper discourse he says i know no longer call you servants but friends a servant doesn't know what his master is doing Hmm. there's that aspect of it too like are you included in the in the vision you know that's what's been so cool about the barista thing is that um from the very beginning we've just been communicating uh, this vision to them and that they've responded and they're not getting paid there's no transaction they're just like part of this um loving act we're doing together for the sake of this campus, you know, and um, it's also something we can all be proud of together. That it's it's beautiful and and cool and legit. Um, so that's very much. It's easy to see. I no longer call you servants for friends. I don't consider them servants. Like I'm grateful that they are helping, um, and I don't feel I have any right to tell them you must do it this way or that way. Even though like we are leaders, like me, Monica, who is the manager and stuff, and has trained them all. Like she saying these are expectations and responsibilities of being part of this team. Um, but you are free to respond, you know, mm-hmm. and if you don't want to do it, you don't have to, mm-hmm. um, you know, so like the, but the, once the money gets involved, once the, it's like, he wouldn't be here if it weren't for the money. Like he's not, I don't even know if he's Catholic or, you know, but we have this cordial human acquaintance relationship where, you know, that's a little harder to see. I no longer call you servants, but friends, but you can still be friendly. Kindness. Friendly boss. I no longer call you <laughs> servant, but 
Kai call you boy with rake who will rake leaves. <laughs> I call you. That's, yeah. I call you. Do as I say or I'll strike you. <laughs> <laughs> I call you. Say that one more time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the leadership style I've been working on. Uh, that's, that's rich. That's rich. <laughs> How was Snitker's leadership style? Did you ever see it in action? Yeah, yeah. No, he's. Um, I mean, he. At least from what I saw, he, he seems like a guy that's going to outwork everybody else, and it makes everybody. Mm-hmm. It builds this culture of, mm-hmm. like, we're here for business. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and even that that so like there's a way that you can look at that and it feels depersonalized, but he also cared about about all of his players. And so he was he was working hard for them too. Not just for an aim outside of them, mm-hmm. like for the World Series, but like I want this for Freddie. I want this for Ozzy. Uh and I think that's when you get like a real team feel and you can get a team feel at work when we're not just working towards an exterior goal, but like we are working for one another. So then the relational personal component comes into play and that seems to be ideal. Mm. Like that's when you're clicking on all cylinders. Um, Well, that's the whole thing with the army and whatnot. They always say you don't, you're not dying for your country. You're dying for the guy next to you. Mm -hmm. Um, I thought the most moving part of the last dance, the Michael Jordan thing was, uh, you remember that one where he cries at the end of this little monologue because they're asking him like, you know, what about people that say you were, were mean or cruel or didn't care about people? And um, they just flash all this footage of like the six championships and um, and him running wind sprints and beating everybody at the wind sprints in practice and just working harder than everybody else. And um, he just goes on this whole thing like, I didn't just want this for me. Like I wanted them to feel what it was like to win. Um, and it had like Horace Grant hugging the trophy or Scotty Pippen or Luke Longley or these guys that never would have won championships if they hadn't been on the team of Michael Jordan. Um, and he's like, but they weren't there at the beginning. They didn't get beat up by the Pistons. They didn't, you know, they didn't have to um, do everything that I did. So like I didn't, you know, if they wanted to be part of this team, they had to kind of earn it. They had to like work hard like me, basically. Um and I, you know, Michael Jordan. I think he has he comes off in different contexts in different ways, and I'm sure he's manicured his image over the years. He's a very, very rich and powerful guy. But I think that there was something about uh, what he was saying that was very, very authentic. Um, I think he said something like people, people that question me, or people that say like, "Oh, he was a tyrant or mean." Like, y- you never wanted anything. You know, like he wanted something really, really bad and it included other people. He needed them to do it, but he also wanted them to, to have it too, you know, to enjoy it. It wasn't just about him being a champion. Um, I, I thought that was really cool. And just seeing him, that image of him beating everybody at wind sprints, like versus Allen Iverson saying, I'm a franchise player. I don't need to go to practice. You know, um, that's a totally different mentality. And that's why Iverson's not a, he's not a champion. Yeah. I you got anything on that, Rob? I I think we should have uh, Alan Iverson on the podcast to respond because <laughs> I just trashed yeah. him. <laughs> <laughs> That's my only thought. 
That's such a famous clip. I know. Practice? You're talking about practice? You're talking about practice? Not the game. Not the game that I love. <laughs> That's like they, the playoffs one. Playoffs? You're talking about playoffs? They actually, in that, that show, Ted Lasso, they did a whole scene where he, word for word. I remember that. Repeats Allen Iverson's interview. But in to, like a very measured and sober way. Yeah. In the locker room as he's like dressing down a player. Yeah. Practice? We talk about practice? <laughs> <laughs> and he gives it like as a speech to this guy. But yeah, you know what? It made me think of, I, it's another 30 for 30, but um, it's a really bizarre, it like made me, uh, I don't know. It was kind of it was the lance armstrong documentary Mm. the 30 for 30 and there's a guy who only wanted one thing and he like trampled people that one i left feeling very icky that's what i was gonna say but i was like i don't know if icky it's that guy may be a psychopath i don't know don't come and find me lance armstrong (laughs) does he listen (laughs) i think he does yeah we think oh my gosh i just coin flip yeah, but there's a guy that was a leader, was in charge of a lot of things, but uh, actually used people as a stepping stone, like very sometimes violently and and uh, non-personalistically uh, to get what he wanted rather than building from the bottom to the top. It was really using the bottom to get to the top. And that does seem like a very important component to it. Hmm. Um, you know, both were, were top of their sport for many, 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 many years. And although biking is an individual thing, he had these individual words, he trained with a team. They rode as a team and even his whole team, like, man, they all got destroyed to the point where he was the only one that was left. And, and I wonder a part of it, you know, it's like, we, we do profess the non-competitive nature of, of God's grace and, and the victory. Uh, and that comes, that manifests itself in the communion of saints, which looks like a team that's victorious. And, uh, and so when we live that out, where it's like, it's not just me, um, but that I want my whole team so that we can share this because it's not me or you, but that it's us, um, that that seems to be like the right way to, yeah, to live personally, but also challenge people and also be successful in your work. Um, Yeah, I don't think Lance Armstrong did that. Mm. I was also thinking about at the end of Moneyball, how he stays in Oakland. Partly because of his daughter, it seems to say in the movie, uh, he doesn't want to move away from his his family. Um, and partly because he's just like, man, I really wanted to win here, you know. And the like the whole loyalty to a team and a place, and um, the drive to make your team the best. There is a there is a good thing about competition, I think. Um, that doesn't. It, it drives you to a certain excellence that if you weren't up against other people trying to be better than them, you would never, you know, Michael Jordan would never have done any of the stuff that he did if it wasn't for like Carl Malone and Charles Barkley and 
all these, you know, <laughs> there's a great YouTube video of just clips from when, when Michael Jordan took it personally or something like all the time. <laughs> I took that very personally when he said that, you know, <laughs> that's, that's what he used to drive himself to work harder. Um, yeah. But how do you make it so that those people aren't just stepping stones on the way to some other end, but yeah, you know, they, um, you could still be friends like Charles Barkley and Michael Jordan were friends, even though they were, you know, bitter rivals, uh, which I think is, that's always kind of a cool tension to hold. Yeah, man, it's very, um, the crux of it too, is like, it's just very, very interior as well. Like that's the mm. truth of it, of like knowing, cause you can say things the right way and, and it come from not a good place. And, um, it's like that. Yeah. I mean, just the whole, um, it's the personalism thing of, I, I like the, um, I, I like there's something like deeply challenging, but I think that's why he's always been so attractive in a John Paul of like, you cannot use a human being as an end in themselves, period. And as a means to an end. Means to an end. Yep. Um, what did I say? You cannot use them as an end in themselves. <laughs> it's early. Whatever. Um, <laughs> All good. A means to an end, period. And that's right. like daily. And you're confronted with that like multiple times a day. Mm -hmm. Whether it's in the, the sexual ethic to get into the, like the human morality that the church teaches or like asking, you know, telling a kid that works to you, for you to rake leaves. Right. Anyway. It's a good examination of conscience. Yeah. And the nice thing is like if it is an interior reality, like you can, you can, ape like you're doing the right thing like you're you, you care about your people but if you don't actually it's eventually going to come out exactly or if you actually do care about people and they just take it the wrong way and they don't want to work and don't want to be part of the team and you end up having to let them go or they quit or whatever they hate you you can be at peace because you're like i don't i'm not using you like you you misunderstand that exactly you know? and just yeah. living in that confidence of this is where this is coming from is is a place of love um Yeah. Well, thank goodness I have no responsibility right now. So you guys are the ones that have to actually deal with this. Hey, man, mm -hmm. I put my pants on one leg at a time in the morning, you know, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> Good. Now we'll have our free uh, labor. Uh, do the show notes for the, what we just talked about, Megan. And then John, <laughs> would you post the video and uh, not get paid? Yes, do that, please. Now. We love you guys. You're the best. <laughs> hey, I'm going to see Megan uh soon no way she's gonna yeah she's driving from i think she, she's coming from auburn maybe i can't remember where she's coming from but going back up to chattanooga so she's gonna stop that's and awesome. say, hey i'm so pumped you're probably uh, you're the first one of us to ever meet her <laughs> in person in person what, did, We've done the what if she's thing. super mean in person <laughs> i that's honestly what i'm expecting i'm gonna be very guarded <laughs> That's awesome. All right, guys. See ya. Take it easy. Follow See you guys. Three Dogs North on Instagram. Three Dogs North are Juice, Seabisc, and Michael Metz. Conversations have been edited to sound smarter. Audio and transcripts of this episode 
are exclusive property of Mundelein Seminary and may not be rebroadcast without the express written consent of Major League Baseball. Good girl.